Welcome to Radio Who, What, Why. I'm Jeff Sheckman. One of the criticisms of Silicon Valley is often that so much talent in engineering is going towards the creation of such minor advancements. A new dating app, a new form of banking, or even games. But all of this belies what's really going on beneath the surface in the world of artificial intelligence. A world, in fact, a word that conjures up whole new fears and confusion. Perhaps it comes from too many science fiction movies, or maybe it's just the fear of the ultimate change and loss of control. Either way, it is coming in every aspect of our lives. We can choose to have the conversation now or complain and protest later. The former seems like a much better idea. And we're going to have that conversation today with my guest, Amir Hussein. He's a serial entrepreneur and inventor. He serves on IBM's advisory board for Watson and Cognitive Computing, and he's the founder and CEO of Spark Cognition, a company specializing in cognitive computing software solutions. His work has been featured in such publications as Fast Company, Wired, Forbes, and the New York Times. And it is my pleasure to welcome Amir Hussein here to talk about the sentient machine, the coming age of artificial intelligence. Amir, thanks so much for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. Jeff, thank you so much for having me. When we talk about artificial intelligence, we tend to talk about it as as sort of one giant thing. Talk a little bit about the, the classifications, the different classifications of artificial intelligence that, that help put it in, in, in a clearer perspective, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, artificial intelligence has been um, a field of study now for many decades. In the late 50s, uh, at a very famous conference at Dartmouth, uh, the fathers of artificial intelligence, um, John McCarthy and Marvin Minsky, um, along with many others, got together and originally their thought was that it wouldn't be very complex to be able to write programs that would cause a computer um, to exhibit the kind of thought that human beings uh, you know, exhibit. Uh, but as more and more work happened in this, in this area, uh, they realized that this wasn't a simple challenge. And many of the things that we think of as very complex, such as, say, play chess at the grandmaster level, uh, that those things ended up being simpler, and they got addressed, and they, you know, artificial intelligence programs got built um, that could defeat a human grandmaster at chess much sooner than we could replicate uh, the behaviors, let's say, of a three-year-old that's curious, that has this sort of innate curiosity, that's discovering the world, that's able to learn across multiple domains. So the classifications of artificial intelligence, and it's very important to understand this, particularly in context of what's going on today, Much of what you see now, the kind of technology that can uh, recognize images and uh, discover objects in those images, or can listen to human speech and then transcribe it as text, uh, these sorts of capabilities fall into the realm of what's referred to as artificial narrow intelligence, ANI where you're using smart programs, you're using uh, techniques that uh, might leverage you know, machine learning or deep learning, which is one of the very popular techniques that's being used these days. But these are all specialized um, applications that are focused on a specific domain. Um, so we might have a program that can defeat a human grandmaster of chess, and in that sense it's very smart but only within the narrow domain of chess. It, uh, it can't drive a car, for example, and that same program can't recognize objects inside pictures. 
It can't carry on a conversation. Now, other ANI systems, other narrow intelligence systems might be able to do that. Um, so that's one ca classification, ANI. And then the other one that's um, worth talking about a little bit is what's called artificial general intelligence. And that's sort of the, the dream of artificial intelligence researchers. That's been the goal uh, that many of the earliest artificial intelligence researchers really targeted, which is the ability to build synthetic intelligence that can replicate the general purpose nature of the human intellect. In other words, the one program that can go and learn about sports and can learn about law and can learn about art and can exhibit that generality in both its expertise as well as its ability to gain further information and continue learning. So those are two that are worth really thinking about, ANI and AGI. Um, there's a third which you know people talk about, which is artificial superintelligence, which is really AGI at a level that's sort of post-human, that's operating so fast, that's gone far beyond the capabilities of a human mind. So that's the third one that uh, is an aspirational goal again, but nothing that uh, we're close to at the moment. One of the things that these two things do, and, and really it's the other part of the conversation, I suppose, is the degree to which artificial intelligence either augments or replaces human involvement. Talk about that. Absolutely. So, you know, one of the, one of the fears around artificial intelligence and the advent of smart machines is that they'll take away our jobs, and much of what we do can be done by um, machine intelligence. Uh, in, at least as far as the performance of economic labors is concerned. Now, in the near term, of course, uh, we're talking about building systems that augment human decision-making. So we know that there are many cognitive biases, um, for example, in um, making uh, legal judgments. Uh, there's a very famous example covered by Daniel Kahneman in his book, Thinking Fast and Slow, where he talks about judges adjudicating uh, parole applications. And when um, the glucose level uh, in their body is at a diminished level, they start defaulting to uh, fast thinking, in other words, not really thinking through the case, and just defaulting to a rejection. And when, after lunch, the glucose level spikes again, they're able to think through that decision more rationally, and the number of approvals goes up. So we know that this is just one example of a cognitive bias, but there are many such cognitive biases. And um, we definitely want to work towards systems that can augment human beings and uh, address some of these shortcomings and some of these issues in our, in our thought pattern. So in the near term, that's definitely a goal. In the medical profession, in energy, my own company is working in those areas, in the military for decision making as well as in actually taking action. Today, it's mostly about augmentation. But very quickly, uh, in some areas, now we're moving into autonomous action where these machines can actually perform a job end-to-end -end without needing a human in the loop. My view is that while we are still at that point in the development of AI where it's, it's mostly about augmentation, we need to start having the policy conversation around what that future social contract looks like. What does an economy, what does a country, what does a democracy that has 
this new form of synthetic intelligence performing labors, what does that look like? And how does that change the social contract that we have in place right now? We need to have that discussion because my view is that ultimately more and more of today's economic labors will be performed by machines. It's not going to happen overnight, but that's the direction we're headed in. So this time that we have now should be used not um, you know, to talk about platitudes, for example, you know, uh, there'll be some jobs that we don't know about that'll come about, it always happens, don't worry about the job losses now, we'll just discover some new form of, of employment for, for human beings in the future, and that may very well be the case, but in my view, when you replicate the human muscle, you know, back in the late 1600s with the steam engine, mm -hmm. uh, from that point on, you saw in history that the employment of the human muscle for significant work uh, diminished drastically. So when we replicate capabilities of the human mind, I think a similar case can be made that now between mind and muscle, that's really the two contributions that humans make to the performance of economic labor. So while there may be new jobs, I don't think you're going to have a one-to-one -one replacement. So I think it's essential to have the conversation on what a society where machines do much of our labor, what that society looks like. But whether it was moving from the agrarian age to the industrial age, or even the degree to which we are in the digital age now, history doesn't really give us any examples of where we've been willing to have the conversation on an a priori basis, to have the conversation before, in fact, these things engage. And that's part of the problem, I suppose. Well, that's a very, very uh, fine observation that you've made there. And uh, you're absolutely right. That, unfortunately, is what history shows us. Um, sometimes realities are staring us in the face, but we s just can't develop the consensus. Um, so I think um, it's, it's, a, it's a responsible thing to push for that. Uh, whether it will happen or not, uh, you know, certainly if you look at history as a guide, probably not. Um, however, I will say one thing, which is that we are not, you know, we're not at the cusp of artificial general intelligence right now. Mm -hmm. And there are two elements to these concerns. One, of course, is AI will take away our jobs. And the second concern is sort of this Terminator-like concern of right. AI will kill us. Now, in that, in that latter um, uh, area of concern in particular, I think that AI researchers can, on their own, even in the absence of a large societal discourse, can contribute quite a bit. And that is through the pursuit of technologies that are uh, labeled safe AI and explainable AI, techniques and algorithms that make the deployment of smart machines safer. And at least in that way, um, I think where we find opportunities as policymakers, as researchers, as scientists, as engineers, wherever we find opportunities to make a difference and contribute something that even in the absence of that larger societal discourse can pave the way for the successful implementation of a development which I think is inevitable, uh, we should. And so I'm doing that. You know, my, my team my, uh, and, my, uh, and my own research interests are focused in part on safe AI, and uh, uh, we're, we, we are huge believers in the fact that that's an area that needs to be invested in more. And I wish 
that policymakers, um, you know, folks that, that work in economic planning, as an example, would take on the cause in a similar way. Make a difference where you can. You can't force the societal discourse, but you can, you can make some noise. And we are trying to make noise in both of these areas, on the economic side as well as on the AI safety side. On the AI safety side, is there a danger of creating a kind of false job, if you will, for humans in this process? You know, it's a little like these meal kits that, that are very popular right now, things like Blue Apron and the like where they give you just enough to do to, to make you feel like you're participating in the process. Is, the, is there a danger that we're going to do the same thing with AI in a way that, that makes people feel good but isn't really constructive and significant in the long run? That, again, is an excellent question. And, you know, a line from the, from the film Flight of the Phoenix comes to mind where there's uh, – hopelessness, a crashed aircraft in the middle of the desert, and everybody's trying to band together to figure things out, and nothing's working out, and everybody's frustrated. And the leader of the group faces some from pushback from, from one, of the, uh, one of the other passengers, and he looks at him and he says, listen, give people hope, and if you can't give them hope, give them something to do. <laughs> so uh, in that spirit, I think um, you're right. There is a concern that it could be, um, uh, you know, buying time where we are, are capable of replacing certain activities and certain jobs and certain tasks with artificial intelligence. But at the same time, we have not had that conversation around the renewed social contract. Our governments have not put our economy in a position where technology can support the populace and can free the populace up to do other things, many of which I talk about in my book. The pursuit of knowledge is a great one. Um, it would just have to be done in a, in a way and under a social contract that recognizes that what we used to call gainful employment, that notion has shifted. But in the absence of all of that, what you're, suggest uh, what you're suggesting might be one of the avenues uh, of last resort that some governments take, where some oversight just for the sake of oversight, some involvement, some human in the loop just for the sake of the human in the loop, that might happen. But again, um, you know, when I talk about some of these things, I don't always get, um, you know, I don't always have a happy audience because people, a lot of people want to hear that it'll all be okay, things will continue the way they are. And the reality is that the development of technology, the march of technology, um, it just cannot be reversed. And the direction in which we're heading, which is the replication of the human cognitive function and going beyond that, will lead to changes in society which are fundamental. So these sorts of stop gaps may happen, like the ones that you suggest, but I think in the long term, it's just a stop gap. And in many tasks, you realize that having that human in the loop was okay for that initial period, but now it's actually um, leading to a compromise of that job function. There's a lot being written now about how when autonomous cars are numerous, and they, are, they form the majority, for example, of vehicles out on the roads, that it might actually be unsafe to allow humans to drive, where all cars being autonomous is a safer situation 
than most cars being autonomous and some cars being human driven. Uh, there's a similar debate going on in um, the military sphere where autonomous weapons are under development now. Uh, the UN has been talking about defining what an autonomous weapon is for the last four years. They just got together three weeks ago at the Convention for Conventional Weapons, which is a UN um, group with over 100 member countries. I think the third or fourth year running, they couldn't agree on a definition of what an autonomous weapon is, while at the same time, you have all the major military powers developing autonomous weapons capability. So technology has a habit of leaving policy behind mm -hmm. if the policymakers aren't motivated to keep up with uh, the march and the, uh, the, the progress uh, that uh, science and technology bring. Is the inflection point really about decision-making? And, and it seems to be an, an even more bold relief when you're talking about it with respect to the military and weapon systems, that the degree to which the decision-making is further and further removed from the human mind, that, that seems to be the sweet spot in the discussion. Well, uh, certainly. I mean, the cognitive function is, at the end of the day, a decision-making function. I've done a lot of work with General John Allen, who's a four-star retired Marine Corps general. He ran all three of our wars, was deputy commander of CENTCOM, commander ISAF in Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, Syrian operations. And uh, he and I have written extensively. In fact, uh, we published a piece uh, in the U.S. Naval Institute Proceedings uh, mag uh, journal, magazine, uh, that was titled on hyperwar and the way we've defined this concept of hyperwar is the application of artificial intelligence in the battlefield and the the whole premise of that um, while there are many many implications the core premise of this is that there's a concept you know in military terms of what's called the OODA loop observe orient decide and act that's a complex way of saying decision action right you you look at something you make a decision and then you act how quickly you can do that in a military context can make the difference between a win and a loss. Even if you have uh, a, a smaller force, even if you have a smaller amount of firepower, the ability to operate inside the enemy's decision action loop where you are able to observe, orient, decide, and act before the enemy can do the same thing means that a smaller force can overpower a larger force. It's a huge advantage. And artificial intelligence in military terms has the potential for shrinking that decision action loop down to nothingness. And that's one example where, again, we will have to really deeply study what this means, how rapidly these capabilities will be implemented, and what the role of human decision makers will be when, at some point, uh, it'll, be, it'll be discovered that adding a human to the loop is actually making you less competitive than an enemy that is choosing to remove the human from the loop because the highest latency, the highest amount of delay is going to be added by having a human decision-making cycle in that loop. And there it's sort of, you know, a, a fait accompli where if somebody else that's opposing you is is removing that human from the loop, what do you do now? Do you keep a human in the loop at your end and have uh, a slower decision action cycle? Or do you match your opponent? Um, these are very difficult questions, but they will all have to be grappled with and will have to be addressed over time. 
the revolution, as you very rightly pointed out, is again, um, it stems from the capability of artificial intelligence, platforms, software, applications, to exhibit the cognitive function, that decision-making function, and do so at massive scale and with immense speed. Um, that is a revolution unlike any other we've ever experienced in the history of humanity. Of course, where this goes to the extent that, that artificial intelligence, by, by shrinking this loop, becomes a kind of force multiplier. The other side of that is that we get into a kind of artificial intelligence arms race. So, again, we are already in the midst of an artificial intelligence arms race. Um, Vladimir Putin uh, just said a few months ago, a couple of months ago, um, speaking to students in Russia, he said that he who controls artificial intelligence will control the world. Um, I don't disagree with him. Uh, China has announced and published uh, an AI national plan. Uh, they have officially stated publicly that their goal is to dominate the field of artificial intelligence and be the number one destination for AI by the year 2030. They have allocated $150 billion in government spending over the next five years. And this is in contrast with U.S. government spending on AI, which was $1.1 billion in 2015 and $1.2 billion in 2016. Think about that. Roughly five or so billion over five years, given that run rate in the U.S., and $150 billion of government spend by China over the next five years. So at the very time when technology is... Uh, poised to change the, the shape of our future, is poised to rewrite the, what will become the history of the century. And I refer to this century that we're living in today as the AI century. It will be that monumentally powerful technological force that will shape not just economies and militaries, but it will shape really our collective future. At that very time, when we require leadership, when we require a national plan, when we require um, a, a JFK speech talking about that great moonshot, talking about doing these things because they are hard and not easy, at that very time, we are faced with some of the most challenging competition that we have ever known in the history of this country, some of the most determined competition. And you're hearing leaders of these near-peer states talk about AI in terms of world domination. But yet, sadly, even though America is the birthplace of uh, artificial intelligence, at least at a formal level, we don't yet have a national plan for artificial intelligence. We don't have a collective strategy. How do we overcome, as, as trite as it sounds, I think that it, it, it is a big part of, of whatever debate is going to happen in any form on this, how do we overcome that cultural inertia, that, that the sort of science fiction images, the fear that it creates in people, that, that certainly from, from a science fiction point of view, it never turns out well for humans. I mean, that, that's sort of a general premise. Well, you know, again... Um Science fiction has helped a lot in um, cases like Star Trek, painting the picture of a future world where 
much of what we're grappling with now has been addressed. I mean, one of the things to, to think about with regards to Star Trek, for example, is Gene Roddenberry's amazing vision. Um, I referenced this in my book also. Mm -hmm. But it's basically a, a you know a, a post-income uh, society. Uh, nobody really talks about their paycheck uh, or you know monetary concerns. Technology has provided for the needs of the populace, and it's not you know Wally where people are sort of just um, letting themselves go and not doing anything productive. They're choosing to uh, discover and explore and do what humanity has always excelled in, which is to uncover knowledge and charter new frontiers. So in that sense, it's helped, but it's also hurt because there are so many dystopian, for every good outcome, as you, as you pointed out, there are probably 10 dystopian sci-fi outcomes. And you know what? That makes for a good story. But the reality is that the only way to engage successfully with the future is to play a role in shaping it. That is something that needs to be communicated and understood. Technology is inevitable. If Albert Einstein had never been born, special relativity and general relativity would still have been uncovered, perhaps a decade or two after what we gained from the brilliant mind of Einstein, but at the same time, it would have come about. There are many examples of this. The Nobel Prize uh, that was won by Abdus Salam and uh, um, Weinberg, these two researchers did not have any common uh, research. They were doing independent work in different countries, uh, you know, uh, on the opposite ends of the world. And yet, they both ended up coming to the same conclusion and then won the Nobel Prize along with uh, Sheldon Glashow. The point here is technology, scientific progress is inevitable. So the only way to contend with the future is to take an active part in shaping it. And here, in the case of artificial intelligence, in very tangible and concrete terms, that is to involve yourself in the debate. That is, if you're scientifically inclined, if you're a computer scientist, if you're an AI researcher, get involved with safe AI. Understand explainable AI. If you're a policymaker, look at the implications of an unchanged model that could lead to the automation of a large number of jobs and could lead to high levels of unemployment. Redefine what it means to be gainfully employed. Leverage technology to take care of the needs of uh, the populace. And many of the economic constructs that we've put into place, this traditional thinking around demand and supply and constraining supply because you want to keep prices up and so on and so forth, which without getting into the details of that, a lot of that has happened over the last several decades. Think about that. Think about what the future looks like and what that new social contract with our citizens needs to be. Getting involved is the only answer. Whether there's a good outcome or a bad outcome, like I said, I think we can make the difference and involvement can make the difference. And, and how to, to respond to people that are just negative about the whole thing and that, that sow this fear, people like Elon Musk at the moment? Well, you know, look, uh, I don't agree with um, the most publicized statements that Elon Musk has made on this topic. He said some things which are... Uh, which make for great sound bites like, you know, AIs like summoning the demon uh, and so on and so forth. But at the same time, Elon Musk is a brilliant man. 
And um, I don't think the totality of his views are reflected by any one of these statements, uh, but to the extent that they are. And of course, uh, I mean, I don't know what's going on in the man's mind. I don't know. Uh, but at least to the, but I do want to give him the benefit of doubt. Um, but that being said, I think, you know, to say that AI is summoning the demon and, and things of this nature, it's unhelpful. Uh, it, it, so, so what? So what are you going to do? Ban AI? It's not going to work. There's a, there's a construct in, you know, in game theory that's referred to as the prisoner's dilemma. And basically that, that whole area of science is concerned with sort of how we make decisions under competitive situations. So what do you do? You ban AI or the development of certain kinds of AI? How are you going to enforce that? Will China comply with that ban? And will Russia comply with that ban? And what if one or the two of them tell you that they are complying with that ban? Will you believe them? Probably won't. And so and neither will they. Neither will they believe you. So at the end of the day, what's going to happen is there's going to be technological development behind closed doors, which is essentially what happens in situations like these, because absent that technological edge, the outcome for any one of these adherents to the ban can be a very negative outcome. None of them will be willing to take that risk. So all of them will not trust the other and will continue these developments. So a ban, in my view, is unenforceable. Even a ban on autonomous weapons is unenforceable. And that's what's actually happening. When a hundred and some countries get together at a UN convention to talk about autonomous weapons and their dangers and potentially talking about a ban, they can't even agree on the definition of what an autonomous weapon is, partly because it's a difficult problem and partly because Many of these countries have made advancements that make it not in their interest to impose a ban at this stage. So my point is that even if you're scared, even if you, uh, you know, think that, that uh, you know, Elon Musk, uh, you know, has, uh, has, has a point, even if you think all those things, then what? You're not going to be able to put a stop to this. The only way to do it is to get involved and to shape a better outcome. So, you know, we don't control all seven and a half billion people on this, on this planet. And AI developments are unlike, for example, building a nuclear reactor. When somebody's building a nuclear reactor, you can see, you can see from space, there's a lot of construction activity, there's huge buildings, there's a lot of earth being moved, and you get a lot of um, advanced notice. In the case of artificial intelligence, you're talking about programmers sitting at computer terminals with laptops or, you know, desktops anywhere. So, look, you, you, you won't know what somebody's working on in the realm of AI software. And so you won't be able to really curb it. The only way to deal with this is to get proactively involved. Amir Hussein. His book is The Sentient Machine, The Coming Age of Artificial Intelligence. Amir, I thank you so much for spending time with us today here on Radio Who, What, Why. Jeff, thank you so much. This was a real pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.